I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. What a week this year has been, huh? I know you're hearing this in February, but we're recording on January 10th, and it's not that often that that joke actually applies. This week, we watched in horror as white supremacists wearing the disguise of patriots storm the sacred grounds of our democracy and use the deadly combination of white privilege and violence to make America an embarrassment again. If you watched what happened at the Capitol and still feel confused or disagree with there being any connection between race, politics, and murder, well, you're either a dummy or a racist, but it's probably both. Allowing behavior like what we saw on January 6th to go unchallenged and even supported by police only puts fuel on the I am a white man and can't get into trouble fire. Well, what does that have to do with murder? Let's take a look at America's serial killers. What do they have in common? Almost 100% of them are white and male. On the flip side, our sex workers, who are so often the victims in these cases, end up with laws passed against them. They are arrested for what they do far more often than the Johns are. Sex workers are put in dangerous situations thanks to laws and politicians that allow white American men to feel they can do anything to them with zero consequences. Why do we not know the names of Ted Bundy's victims, but we all know at least one person that thinks he's hot? It was that perceived power, privilege, and superiority that led to a young couple making their way down the West Coast, leaving a trail of carnage and loss, all motivated by the goal of attacking those that were different than them and starting a race war. 24-year-old David Joey Peterson had already done major time in prison, during which he was given therapeutic treatment and provided resources for his newly reformed life out of the clink, said my fantasy. Because of course he wasn't given resources, he was given access to other people who were angry, violent, and racist. He was young, lost, and impressionable when his actions and Oregon laws set him on a course that would lead to a 10-day killing spree and left the West Coast shaken and terrified. Raised in Camp Pendleton, California, with his Marine Sergeant father, David Red Jones Peterson, and his mother, who struggled with managing her multiple personality disorder, to say Joey struggled in his youth would be an understatement. In 1993, his parents divorced, and in a most unusual circumstance, neither parent asked for custody of Joey or his sister, so they were sent to state in Oregon to live with their aunt. In corresponding with Allison Barnwell of PDX Monthly, Joey claimed those were the best years of his life, saying that his aunt would make their house a home, have guests over, bake, celebrate the holidays. Even his school reports, which did show some behavior and rule-following issues, still reported he was a good kid and had a bright disposition. Eventually, his mom would take the children back and moved with them to Salem, Oregon. Joey was now a teenager, and the disruptions of his life were starting to lead to dangerous behaviors. He was only 14 when he was hanging out with the wrong crowd, drinking, skipping school, shoplifting, and tagging, all leading up to a brief stint at juvie. At the same time, he first started to experience panic attacks. A doctor put him on the antidepressant Zoloft to help him with them. It may have helped with the panic attacks, but it didn't help his destructive choice making. He dropped out of school, and at 16 years old, he was kicked out of his house, working as a busser, and living with a co-worker's family member. With no therapeutic intervention to keep this kid from falling into a spiral of bad choices, he decided to quit his job. But the trouble with doing that is you don't make money when you don't have a job. So he took it upon himself to go to a local coffee stand and, using a paper bag as a cover for his unloaded gun, he robbed it. 
leaving with $600. Not getting caught and feeling brazen, it was a few months later he robbed another coffee stand before moving up to a McDonald's. But the arches don't mess around, and on January 13, 1997, Joey was arrested for robbery. It was Measure 11, an Oregon law passed in 1995, which not only changed minimum sentences for many violent felonies, but it also allowed for 15-year-olds to be tried as adults if they committed any of the crimes within the measure, which would lead to Joey's life taking an even more negative trajectory. Oh, America, where a 20-year-old can't drink because they aren't an adult, but if they've committed a crime, suddenly they have the ability to make adult choices and not only receive, but comprehend the corresponding punishment. A real I-before-E-except-after-C-and-sometimes-Y situation. This measure, of course, was created under the guise of keeping bad guys, or kids, off the street, but it was really created to add more people to profit prisons. So, because of Measure 11, Joey was charged as an adult and pleaded guilty to two counts of second-degree robbery. Off he went to Lincoln County Jail, home of the Oregon Youth Authority. His reports from jail were much different from those from school. He argued with counselors, hit a fellow underaged inmate, and many others. This led to him being mostly alone in his room or on the maximum security unit. He was then transferred to the McLaren Youth Correctional Institution in Woodburn, where the intake board begged for him to be moved to an adult prison. Joey spent his 17th birthday being moved from Juvie to the Oregon State Correctional Institution. While Canada now has a law forbidding the practice, and all specialists note that any underage person should never be sent to an adult prison, Oregon did it then and continues to do so. However, there was something good to actually come out of 2020. A new bill was signed by Oregon's Governor Kate Brown, which prohibits offenders between 15 and 17 years of age from having their cases heard in adult court. This allows more of a focus on rehabilitation, as there isn't a jury, there's a judge that decides the sentence, and hopefully having some understanding of the developing brain can allow for the best option per individual. This bill also states that if someone is under the age of 18 when the crime is committed, they cannot be sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole, which is great, except if you put a 15-year-old in prison for 15 years and don't offer support, resources, or rehabilitation, how exactly would you expect that 30-year-old to exist in society? A not-so-fun fact, Oregon had the second-highest juvenile incarceration rate in the U.S. in 2015. Now we're right around the national average with 230 to 300 kids locked up per 100,000. It only took eight days and a fight to send Joey to solitary at 17 years old. I will say it every chance I get, please go watch Time, the Khalif Browder story on Netflix to get an idea of what this kid was facing. Criminal or not, this isn't what we should be doing to our kids, especially if we aren't wanting them to grow up to become monsters. The years went on as Joey spent his youth in a room for 23 hours a day, exposed only to the horror, violence, and depravity that happens in our prisons, which he witnessed through his food slot. Bitter and filled with hate and youthful rage, Joey found solace in white supremacy. His guide to all that is racist awfulness was the man in the next cell over who could talk to Joey through a vent, a man that had killed his own foster mom and had decided that white supremacy was the way to go. Together, they continued to build the prison gang, the Aryan Soldiers. But they weren't like those other racist prison gangs. They were focused on being fringe and excessively violent. 
Joey's violent behavior increased and his connection to white supremacists became known, leading to dozens upon dozens of violations. One was for writing threatening letters to the DA just out of boredom, another for beating an officer with a hot iron because he was there, which Joey claims was met with a shackled beating and having his teeth knocked out by correction officers. Those lesser violations led to solitary confinement and lots of it. The beating of the officer, a beating that only remained that and not a murder because a fellow inmate stepped in to save the officer's life, led to Joey being transferred yet again, this time to a supermax prison in Florence, Colorado, a prison that housed terrorists, both international and local, a prison that has been brought up time and time again as needing to be looked at for inhumane practices. With nothing to keep his mind occupied, Joey became obsessed with vengeance and releasing his anger, especially on correctional officers. Fifteen years later, Joey was released and moved into a halfway house in Salem, working out, talking about starting a family, and trying to get work. After he was unable to get a job in Salem, he was allowed to move to Portland to continue his attempt at finding work. In addition to the work search, he also traveled out of state, violating probation, with friends, and even competed in multiple cage fights. And of course, he continued to spend his time with fellow white supremacists. One such friend was Corey Wyatt, a former fellow inmate who was monitored by Officer Rob Anderson, who saw trouble brewing in their companionship. In regards to his efforts to thwart the friendship, he told Allison Barnwell of PDX Monthly, There's only so much I can do. I watch Fox News every night. I know I'm going to see somebody from my caseload. The severity of the damage these people go through in the correction system, I don't think the average person gets it. You can't make a cupcake out of shit. Fifteen years had gone by, eleven of which were spent in some form of solitary. Now 30 years old, Joey was a free man, having spent most of his important years of physical, mental, and emotional development in high, maximum, and super-security prisons. He had little on his mind besides revenge. It was after his release he met Holly Gisby, a fellow white supremacist since she was a teenager. She came across Joey, and they fell in hate with each other. Holly had served time in prison for identity theft and additional charges— During her time behind bars, she gave birth to her son, Danny. When she came out of prison, she was focused on her husband, son, and kicking her heroin habit while getting back to work. When she met Joey and learned of his desire to start a revolution, much in the same way Manson attempted his helter-skelter in the 60s by going on a killing spree, seeking specifically to kill Jewish people and to aid in the denegrofying of America, she was all in. But Joey had another target in mind for his first victim— his own father. While in prison, Joey had received a letter from a family member claiming that Red, Joey's dad, had been molesting them. He talked to two inmates about it, Corey Wyatt and Bryce Woods, all agreeing that yes, his father deserved to die. Once they were caught hanging out together outside of prison, breaking parole violations, Corey and Bryce decided to keep their distance from Joey, even refusing to travel with him to Reno for an MMA fight. But not Holly. She was all in. By now, she had quit her job, left her family, and was traveling outside the state, another violation, with her new beau. Together, they felt they were doing the patriotic thing by saving the pure white American culture they loved so much. They came back to Oregon, and Joey continued to tell his friends and Holly that he was going to go off the grid and carry out his revolution, starting with going to his dad's house to rob him of his personal arsenal and money and to kill him for being an accused child molester. 
but the guys backed out of the revolution. Corey Wyatt and his fiance Kimberly were only willing to drive Joey and Holly to a bus station and to provide him with a 9mm pistol. Knowing she might not survive and being willing to die for her cause, Holly left a journal with Corey and asked him to give it to her young son as she wasn't sure she would ever see him again. Holly also wrote a letter to Alan Watkins, who was a co-founder of the Aryan Soldiers. This letter is, of course, rife with spelling and grammatical errors. Hail, sir, brother. How goes the fight on your side of the cage? It's spicing up on my side for me anyway. Any hate... My name is Holly. I'm a like-minded 24-year-old. I've been putting in work for what I love since I was 13. I'm Joey's old lady, and being the comrade he is, he wanted to get you some under-the-door love, so here I am. I've done four years myself, so I understand how just a few lines can make or break a motherfucker whole day. Not sure how often I will be able to write, because I will not be in one spot too long. The call has come, and I can't wait to see what the gods have in store for me. I will write as often as I can, and if you so choose to respond, I will pick up those responses as often as is safe. Maybe when we meet up in the Hall of Slain, we can swap some art over some mead. Look forward to hearing from you somehow, and if racial preservation calls for my death before we get to know each other, then I will see you at our ultimate destination, Stride with Pride. Stride with Pride stands for Supreme White Power, which matches Joey's neck in wrapping SWP tattoo. On the bus, Joey and Holly were making their way to Everett, Washington to stay with David Red Peterson and his second wife, Leslie May Dee Dee Peterson. They spent several days at the house, and while their hosts were oblivious to anything nefarious going on, the guests were plotting their demise. On September 26, 2011, Joey and Holly asked Red for a ride to a bus stop, but on the way wanted to scope out potential campsites in a remote area outside of Everett. With Joey in the back seat behind his dad and Holly in the front while Red drove his Jeep Patriot to the secluded area, Joey took out the gun Corey had provided and shot Red in the back of the head. As they had planned, Holly pulled his dying, moaning body to the side so she could crawl over him and get control of the vehicle before they crashed. For at least 30 minutes, the couple drove around with Red in the passenger seat, writhing and groaning in pain until he finally succumbed to his injury. With his father finally dead, the couple took his credit card out of his wallet, covered him in clothes, and drove into town where they went to multiple stores to buy things like clean clothing. But they weren't done with their dastardly deeds. Instead of skipping town, they returned to the family home and robbed Dee Dee of her credit cards and PIN numbers before they duct-taped her hands and legs— they then took her to her own bedroom and rebound her legs to the bed. Once bound to the bed, Holly began to question Dee Dee's support of Red, even though he was a child molester. As Dee Dee began to defend her husband, Holly slit her throat twice with two different knives because neither of them were sharp enough to do the job. Joey assisted by feeding the family dog pills to keep him quiet. They then put sheets and pillows around Dee Dee's head to contain the blood. Waiting until it was dark, they made their way out of the house and left in Red's Jeep, with his body still inside. They had robbed Joey's family of checks, credit cards, and weapons. The next day, they arrived at Corey Wyatt's house in Oregon. Joey explained to his friend he had killed his father and stepmother and that the dad's body was still in the car when he arrived. Instead of calling the police, Corey called his fiancée Kimberly, who had been at a friend's house. He told her it was an emergency and she needed to get home ASAP. Once all together, the Wyatts led Joey and Holly to a wooded area outside Lebanon, Oregon. 
Once in a desolate enough spot, they took their personal items from the jeep before pushing it, with Red's body still inside, over an embankment. All four then drove back to the Wyatt home where they spent the evening talking about how they had committed their crimes. They bragged about how ingenious they were to have shot Red in the back of the head since his marine training would have made any other option impossible. Holly bragged about being able to control the vehicle through all of it. And she took full responsibility in the death of Dee Dee. Why hadn't Joey helped? Because it's apparently a fundamental belief in white supremacy that a man doesn't hurt a woman. But I guess it's okay to have your girlfriend do it and do nothing to stop a woman from being harmed? Using the money they had withdrawn from the debit and credit cards, the Wyatts took Joey and Holly shopping for camping supplies. The next step was to take the Bonnie and Clyde wannabes to the coast. Along the way, they stopped at Central Park in Corvallis to dispose of a backpack that had bloody clothing in it, some of the credit cards, a rifle tag, rifle paperwork, and a note that said, J Federation of Greater Seattle, and had an address and phone number for the Jewish Federation of Greater Seattle. The foursome made it to the west side of Philomath, which sits west of Corvallis, and dropped the couple off. For three nights, they camped and planned. They decided the only way to continue their mission was to get a car, and the only way to do that would be to carjack someone. They were able to hitch a ride to Newport on the Oregon coast on September 30th. On October 1st, Holly approached 19-year-old college student Cody Myers, a young, passionate musician. He had been at the Newport Jazz Festival and was making his way home. Holly was able to talk him into giving her a ride. As she got in the front seat, Joey got into the rear passenger seat and pulled out his pistol. Held at gunpoint, the terrified teen drove the couple back to their camping spot. Once there, they informed Cody that they would be taking his car. All three got out of the vehicle, and without warning, Joey shot Cody in the chest twice and instructed Holly to get back in the car and to start driving. But Cody wasn't going down without a fight. He was able to get into the backseat of the car, as did Joey. Holly made the getaway as Joey wrestled with Cody, shooting him again, once in the back, then a fatal shot to the head. Driving to a remote location, they dumped his body, covered it in a tarp, sleeping bag, bags of trash, and the wipes they had used to clean themselves after moving his body. They had stolen his wallet and were back to the plan at hand, their revolution. But their impulsive actions had caused them to reevaluate the location of the revolution. Originally, they wanted to kill Jewish people and leaders in either Seattle or Portland. Now that they had committed multiple murders in both Oregon and Washington, they redirected themselves to Sacramento, California. Around October 4th, the couple arrived in California, still driving young Cody's car. It hadn't taken long for authorities to be on their trail, and they were now being talked about on the news and were suspects in the murder spree. It was known the car they were in was not only stolen, but now contained murderers, so they decided they would need to change vehicles. Later that night, Holly waited in the parking lot of a Winco grocery store in Eureka, California, and asked people if they would give her and her boyfriend a ride. I'm guessing his face tattoos and huge white supremacist neck tattoo probably didn't aid in their being ideal hitchhiking candidates. Eventually, the kindness in one man's heart would lead to his death. 53-year-old Reginald Allen Clark agreed to give them a ride in exchange for gas money. I guess their agreeing to the deal speaks to how desperate they were, as Reginald was a black man. They got into the car and drove up the road a few miles when Joey asked Reginald to pull over so he could take a leak. Upon his return, Joey pulled out his pistol and told Reginald to move over so Holly could drive. Reginald followed the directions and they continued down the highway. While Holly drove, Joey shot Reginald in the head, killing him instantly. 
Holly drove the car back to Winco so they could get their things. It was then they realized a small detail that made Reginald's death even more senseless. He didn't have a permanent license plate on his car, so they decided to take their chance staying in Cody's car. They drove Reginald's to a nearby street, covered his deceased body with clothing, and abandoned it. The next day, October 5, 2011, the 10-day killing spree came to an end in Yuba City when a California Highway Patrol officer recognized the vehicle and pulled it over. The couple was arrested and all the evidence prosecutors would need to seal their case was in the car. Not only were they in Cody's stolen car, but the car itself contained multiple guns, Cody's wallet, the knives used to kill Dee Dee, and Red's wallet was in Joey's pocket. The weapons and couple had DNA all over them, linking them to the murders. But it was what was inside the stolen wallet that showed the true intentions of the pair. It was a torn-out section of a phone book. It contained the addresses and phone numbers for Jewish organizations in Portland. It also had a handwritten press release written by Joey. It read, Blank was eliminated because as blank of the blank, he was actively working to further Zionist interests here in America, directly threatening the existence of our culture. May this act serve as notice to all Zionist agents here in America and abroad, as well as their traitorous lackeys, that there exists yet a stout-hearted resistance to those forces seeking to destroy our race. For too long, the great warrior soul of the European people has lain dormant or been spent in misguided endeavors, and we mean to revive it in an attempt to regain what has long been lost, our existence as a homogenous cultural entity, independent and free of all alien influence." Sons of the Wolf. A few weeks later, the Oregonian received a letter from Joey that he had sent from prison. We sought to do our part in the struggle for racial preservation, not in the hopes that it would affect any great change itself, but that it would serve as an example for others to follow, and that maybe the inspiration we provided would compel another kindred spirit to follow suit, providing yet another example to follow, eventually lighting the spark that turns into the flame of all-out revolution. On October 7th, Red's Jeep was located off the embankment, stuck resting on a tree. Red's body was still inside. The autopsy showed he had been shot at close range behind his right ear. While Red was seen as someone that needed to die because of the molestation accusations, they both claimed that killing him was beneficial to their plan for two reasons. He was a degenerate who was not fit to be white, and they were able to rob him of his car, weapons, and money, fuel for their plan. Cody's body was found, and the autopsy showed he had died from multiple gunshot wounds. He had been shot twice in the chest, once in the mid-back, and once in the head, penetrating his brain. When questioned, both claimed 19-year-old Cody was killed for two reasons. He wouldn't give up his car, and they didn't want any witnesses. Joey referred to him as a casualty of war. But Cody was so much more than that. Cody Myers was a music-loving teenager, a son, a brother, a deeply religious young man that wanted to see the music he loved so much be accessible to every child. So, in his memory, his family has set up the Cody Myers Music Outreach Foundation, which you can find on Facebook. All the bullets recovered showed they had come from the same gun, the 9mm pistol Corey had provided. Meanwhile, in Eureka, Reginald had been reported missing for three days when his vehicle was found. Police arrived to check out his car when they found a pool of blood under the trunk. It was, Reginald's, it was Reginald's blood that had seeped from the back seat to the floor and through the floorboard to the street. Inside, they found Reginald's body hidden under the clothes pile the couple had put on him. The autopsy confirmed he had been shot in the head and the bullet casing matched the pistol. 
Reginald was another murder the couple coldly disregarded as a casualty of necessity, that they, no pun intended, killed two birds with one stone. Not only did they get rid of a witness, they felt they had cleansed the world of a, quote, Negro degenerate, because Joey had assumed that because Reginald was black, he was a homeless drug user. Holly gave an interview in which she said she saw her actions as a sacrifice for the greater good of racial preservation, that, quote, I'm hoping the sacrifice we have made will open some people's eyes and they will wake up and hear the call. It's not as hard as they think. This is what I was born to do. I don't believe I did a whole lot, killing a child molester and a Negro. It's not going to accomplish what I want to, but maybe it ignites a spark in somebody's eyes that this world will carry on what we have started. Joey and Holly were charged with aggravated murder for both Red and Dee Dee Peterson. In March of 2012, Joey pleaded guilty and was sentenced to consecutive life terms of imprisonment, one without the possibility of parole. While Holly was waiting to hear her sentencing, a federal grand jury had indicted both of them on charges of racketeering, the four murders, and other crimes connected to the spree. Holly's Washington charges were dropped so the federal charges could be the focus. Both Joey and Holly were extradited to Oregon. At first, the death penalty was on the table, but the attorney general agreed to let them plead guilty as part of a deal wherein the death penalty would not be an option. When it came time for the victim's statements, Joey's stepsister and daughter of Dee Dee said, Evil has no soul. The defendant is the epitome of evil. She went on to call him a sociopath. In 2014, both Joey Peterson and Holly Grisby were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. For their part in the revolution, Corey Wyatt served seven years and five months behind bars and got a job at the anti-Black Lives Matter-owned Above the Rest Roofing in Eugene and was arrested again in 2020 for running from the cops. He is well known to the far right. Kimberly, his now wife, received probation. But that wasn't the end of the story. Senior District Judge Answer L. Haggerty criticized prosecutors for what he called a disturbing series of oversights and ethical missteps conducted by the police. Because what would a white supremacy case be without some police misconduct? But shockingly, unlike what we saw at the Capitol, the police weren't helping the racists out. Supposedly by accident, Detective Dave Steele listened to phone calls between Joey and his attorney, which you may be thinking, aren't all jail calls recorded? Yes, but phone calls that involve attorney-client privilege are not supposed to be listened to, especially by law enforcement. The judge also accused the detective of backdating evidence reports, destroying evidence, lying to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and filing a false declaration with the court. The judge continued, Given the breadth of this misconduct in this case, it is not difficult to imagine that he has committed similar misconduct in other cases. Ouch. The judge felt that the Oregon State Police must have been overwhelmed when dealing with such a big case. It was also confirmed that the death penalty came off the table because the DA had learned of the mishandling of the case. The non-death penalty deal made with Joey allowed for a guilty plea in exchange for lighter sentences for Corey and Kimberly Wyatt. He was also given a decadent meal of grilled salmon and dessert for himself and his attorneys. The judge was embarrassed by the mistakes the cops made, saying it pulled attention away from the defendant's crimes and the consequences that came with them. Joey's opinion of the cops' mistakes? His attorney said, He felt it was ironic that those who were sworn to bring him to justice for the crimes he readily admitted to committing were unable to admit their own wrongdoing. 
Detective Dave Steele, the one that had lied, backdated, shredded, hid, destroyed, and forged evidence, was charged. He was sentenced to 18 months probation for felony forgery and 18 months probation for official misconduct. While he did have to turn in his badge, he didn't have to serve 36 months probation. He was allowed to serve his sentences concurrently, even though he forged paperwork for what had started as a death penalty case. It's super frustrating when you see what appears to be a very cut and dry case be totally bumbled by police yeah. who their sole job is to not do that shit. <laughs> and I, you know, the forgery was because he signed a document as his superior. So and then there were accusations of things being shredded and things like that. So luckily it didn't ruin the case and let these people go. But yeah, why would you do something? It's yeah. so simple and so little and literally could everything cost an entire case. that officer touch is now taken out of the equation, right? Mm -hmm. So if you don't have a very super buttoned up case, mm -hmm. that could be everything. And I haven't read anything as far as looking into his other cases, but I hope They've that there's been an investigation through these years that, you know, because they were sentenced in 2014. So I'm hoping... Over these last couple of years, they've gone through all the cases he's worked on. But then again, that's kind of like in the Kurt Cobain case where it's that embarrassment factor. Mm -hmm. We don't want to say we were wrong. Or... Well, and you risk having to let someone go mm -hmm. because the whole case hinged on a piece of evidence, mm -hmm. you know. But so it gets can... so tricky because obviously you would never want these people out ever. Like, they admitted to it. It's yes. clearly horrendous. There's plenty of evidence it's just really frustrating that it could have been totally uh dismissed mm -hmm. you know based on some poor decisions mm -hmm. and then and part of you wants to say oh who cares these guys are the worst of the worst whatever but he no, signed a I document mean, because the issue becomes then that's for anybody yeah. that's me walking down the street and they decide i look like someone else or they mishandle a piece of paper mm -hmm. and now i'm in jail for 30 years we have years. process for a reason it's there to protect everybody even mm -hmm. though it doesn't feel like that sometimes i mean even in corporate america i had a job where i couldn't sign my superior had to sign mm -hmm. and on occasion he'd be like just sign my name and it's like well if if somebody found that out or right. this came into question like that you lose your job over mm -hmm. that kind of stuff so that is why you have those protections in place so that's really <laughs> that's really scary yeah it seems like every day we're hearing from a different DA where someone has either been maimed or murdered by police and no charges are coming. So even though this seems little, it is a big deal because now he can't be fumbling up other cases, yeah. whether that means you're letting the bad guys get away or you're putting the wrong people away. Agreed. So one thing that I stopped myself from interrupting you, but I get a little thrill out of people who talking about her letter mm -hmm. they try to sound like they're so sophisticated but yeah. there's the spelling errors i just get a thrill from that for some reason but her <laughs> use of the word mead really made me giggle inside yeah she <laughs> read it somewhere and was like yes of course so i think the word what it what was her uh how'd she say hello again uh Hale, 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 that's Hale, uh i think that's from norse okay terminology i think that's Interesting. It's I think they it's sad when people repurpose words for white supremacy. But yeah. 
Yeah, I want to dig into that a little more. I don't know a lot about it. But. And, well, to turn around and have that. So you start out with this Norse, this ancient word and and then go any hate, um, <laughs> you know, and it's like that literally doesn't even make sense. You're just working that into the sentence to be like, we're hate filled. It's cool. She's trying to be cutesy in such a disgusting topic. Like I, yeah. bonkers. Yeah, it's hideous. I mean, the whole thing is mm-hmm. hideous. Joey Peterson and Holly Grisby and all the people like them that destroy families and take lives without thought, they are the worst of the worst. But as I write story after story and read background after background of a child that was neglected, be it by their families, the educational or the justice system, it's becoming harder and harder to place the blame solely on them. The events that occurred at the nation's capital on January 6th are a good analogy for this. We can put the blame on just those people, the guy in the Viking hat, the smug prick with his feet on the desk, individuals that made disgusting decisions, the individuals that must be held accountable. But if we continue to not address the bigger issues, education, access to resources, police involvement and misconduct, the school-to-prison pipeline, lack of emotional intelligence, and the influence of white supremacists to lead people to take similar actions, well, we'll never see an end to these murders, sprees, and mass killings. Child after child will turn into a lost teenager that becomes a hopeless adult that becomes either someone in a leadership position hoping to push their agenda on their followers to incite copycats or becomes someone people root for to get hurt, be it by tasing themselves in the Capitol or being put in the electric chair. While I mean no support or excuse for people that do such horrendous things, I still believe empathy is important. Understanding where someone, even if they are a Nazi, is coming from can lead to conversations that can lead to bigger answers. Not because he wasn't a bad guy, but if someone had engaged with Joey when he was a teen and going through such a difficult period in life, we not only wouldn't have a man on a killing spree, but Red and Dee Dee Peterson, Cody Myers, and Reginald Allen Clark would still be with us. One of the best things I have taken away from my time in therapeutic coaching is approaching someone that may be acting out or reactive, not by saying, what's wrong with you, but by saying, what happened to you? There's a cause to these behaviors, choices, and actions. That goes for the Black Lives Matter movement. If you're on the side of the capital trespassers and against Black Lives Matter, first off, I appreciate you being open-minded enough to listen this far. Secondly, you could ask a person of color, what happened to you? And a very small part of that answer would probably include something along the lines of, as a black American, I've been treated differently by strangers. I've been profiled by authority figures. I've been beaten by police. I've been denied jobs, housing, seating, promotion, opportunities because I'm a black American. I, as have all of my family, friends, and ancestors, have been treated as a lesser human because of the color of my skin. I've had people like Joey Peterson and Holly Grisby go on a hunt for people like me because of my skin or, in this case, religion or nationality. For 400 years, I've been treated as a lesser person because my skin is different, and that's just my white ass making broad guesses. That is why marches have happened in the streets, people protesting the fact that far too many black and brown people don't make it home from a traffic stop while black and brown people have to watch on the television as hundreds of white supremacists storm a federal building with not only minimal resistance, but support from the very law enforcement that is supposed to serve and protect all Americans. We cannot continue to have a prison and judicial system as broken as ours and continue to be surprised when it creates broken people that lead to broken lives, broken hearts, and broken families. 
what a year. Nope. <laughs> Out the gate. My friend David did the funniest like parody of Top Gun and that scene was the best one like all the hot guys in the junior class with their shirts off I'm like damn why wasn't I a year younger (laughs) it was so funny though he even like had the locker and like slammed it and they had their like tags that's (laughs) great I wish I had a copy it was so good we watched that love scene just the other day we did it was extremely erotic Emily um, my boyfriend, my eighth oh. grade boyfriend, Brian Thomas, told me I looked like her once. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I, I could see, see that back in the day. Because I also had my hair us. like short and kind of yeah. fluffy. You get a leather jacket with the sleeves pushed yeah, up. Yeah, that'd be cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. <laughs> but he acted so badly after I broke up with him. I'm like. <sighs> it took your breath away. <laughs> like he, we couldn't be friends for years. It wasn't till college where he saw me in a bar and was like, hey, Oh, God, how are he just you? flew back into the danger zone. <laughs> yeah, we did. What do you mean he behaved so badly? He was like irate over it. Over, irate, over like, the ending of and Top wouldn't be No, <laughs> over my breaking up oh, with him. Oh. <laughs> I get that. What the fuck happened? I was looking at photos from like 2017. I'm like, damn, I look good. What the fuck, Emily? Just went buck with the ego waffles. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 